Hello, kindred spirits. I'm back with a new phrase that we're going to talk about. Well, it's not new, it's old, but we're going to talk about the phrase fixin' to. I put this on social this week and got lots of responses. It seems to be an endearing phrase that a lot of people use and love, and it calls up a lot of memories. So let's talk about fixin' to. The fixin' to has a long history in the American South in particular. It is still being used. And if you wonder why people are still using a phrase like this, here's an answer from Walt Wolfram in his book, American English. He says that fixin' to carries strong symbolic meaning as a marker of regional identity. This symbolic meaning may play a key role in why this phrase stays afloat in American English. Phrase fixin' to has even made its way into commercial products. I bought a plate that says I'm fixing to at Cracker Barrel, and it's got a matching cup that says, Lord have mercy. So you can even find it on products, which you can find a lot of these phrases on products now. But here's an example of how this phrase works. So if I say something like, I'm fixing to put up the Christmas tree, here are three standardized versions of what I could mean. I'm planning to put up the Christmas tree. I'm about to put up the Christmas tree and I'm going to put up the Christmas tree. So as you can see, fixing to is a way of suggesting that you're going to do something in the immediate future, like really, really soon. Think of the phrase going to and the variation gonna in spoken English. Fixing to has a variation finna, F-I-N-N-A, that is mostly used by members of the African-American community. It means the same thing, and it has also made its way into popular culture in rap lyrics as early as 1980s, 1990s. And so this is an example of how language takes on different forms over time. Wolfram, in his research, also finds that fixing to moved as far west as Oklahoma. It's pretty prevalent there. And again, language comes and goes with people. So you have to think about migration patterns and how they work and how people take their language with them. Now, if you look on the Yale Grammatical Diversity Project English and North America page, they have a map of where fixin' to is considered appropriate usage or whether it's accepted usage. So you'll find that in the greater American South, fixin' to is pretty prevalent. And then especially in the Midland and Southern Appalachian region, fixing to is prevalent. But what surprised me is it's also prevalent in the upper North England states, all the way up to Maine and as far west as the Pacific Northwest. I thought I would add on and talk about the A prefix as well, because the A prefix could be added to fixin' so that you would say, I'm a fixin' to put up the Christmas tree. Now, the, the A prefix is a variation that's fairly old. Montgomery says that it was brought over from southern England in the um, first waves of migration. Spoken in predominantly white speech communities, according to the research, there are varieties that have been spoken in Scotland, Ireland, and parts of England. It's less common among younger individuals. We know from studies conducted at West Virginia University by Kirk Hazen and his students that the A prefix has been on decline, in decline among speakers since about the 1960s. So it's older speakers are using it, but younger speakers are not. Now, I think what's really interesting is that it's a very old speech variation. Michael Montgomery argues that the prefix developed from early Middle English 
from Anne on. It rose from those particular words that were recorded as early as 1594. So if you think about in popular culture, the Christmas Carol, The Twelve Days of Christmas, which was published in the late 1700s. It mentions 10 lords a-leaping, eight maids a-milking, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying. And so it goes as far back as that. And so you might have been using it all along when you're singing that song and you didn't even realize it. The Yale University Dialect Diversity Project quotes the laws of Yale College written in 1795 and quoted from Fegan, 1979. Someone wrote, If any scholar shall go a-fishing or sailing or more than two miles from the college upon any occasion without leave from the president, a professor, or a tutor, he may be fined not exceeding 34 cents. So even in 1795, they were using it at Yale University. I still encounter people who have this extreme, I'm sorry, you're going to hear barking dogs, this extreme idea about rightness and wrongness when it comes to language. And what I want you to remember is everything that I share with you here is based on research. Everything is based on research, whether it's my research or research someone else has done. But more importantly, when we judge the way someone uses language, it's a social judgment. It's not based in fact. And people will argue with you all day long about that. No, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. But you can't think about language in dualities. It's too complex. It's very old. It's got so many layers. It comes and goes with people as they migrate. And so to say something is right or wrong is sort of like judging someone's eye color or hair color. It may be more accepted in certain occasions or situations than in others. That's true. But again, that's a social judgment. And so that's something we have to remember when we're talking casually about language. I know that we measure standard English in in our institutions because we're teaching students how to use it. And that's going to be a podcast episode for a later time or series of episodes, actually, because I want to share with teachers what we mean by code switching, code meshing, how we can teach students in such a way that doesn't ask them to erase their dialect, but rather add another dialect to their toolbox, which is what we're doing when we teach standard English. This week, I have the privilege of speaking at Hindman Settlement School at their winter borough. And in preparation for that, because it's the Verna Mae Sloan lecture, I've been rereading Verna Mae Sloan's book, How We Talked. Verna Mae Sloan was born in eastern Kentucky. She grew up in Knott County. That's where she lived. And she didn't start writing until her later years. She didn't start publishing until her 60s. And she wrote a book, What My Heart Wants to Tell, about her upbringing and and her life in the Kentucky mountains. And then she also wrote um, How We Talked, which is a wonderful preservation of words and phrases and stories and songs that she put together. And she says in the introduction something that I think is so beautifully phrased, and it, it was something that was on my mind anyway. And when I read it, I thought, well, I want to share that. So this is just a little excerpt from Verna Mae Sloan's How We Talk. If you want a book written by someone who grew up in Appalachia, speaking the Appalachian dialects, who is writing about it in the most authentic way possible, this is a really good book for you to get. She says in the chapter, Our Old Sayings, the beautiful language of our people is slowly fading into the past impossible to capture on paper, hard to understand or learn. It cannot be imitated. Even on tape, it loses something. Yet it's never forgotten or lost by someone born into it. I've seen and heard folks come back to the hills after being away, PhDs to their credit. 
slip back into the dialect in a matter of hours. Yet I've heard professional actors that speak several languages fluently think they were talking like a hillbilly. To us, it sounds so unreal. It would be pathetic if it were not so laughable. I've heard the words deep twangy used to describe our voices, which is correct as far as it goes, but its musical, soft, low murmuring sound is hard to describe. The memory of its beauty has been tarnished by outsiders, ridiculed and demeaned by its exaggeration. Our language belongs only to us people of Appalachian Mountains. It may vary from state to state, small but distinct differences in the pronouncing of a word, use of an expression. Even families living only a few miles apart are found to have some words used only by them. For example, when we mean to say, I don't know if I will, I say, I don't know where I will or not. My husband says, I don't know what I will. We do not talk the same to outsiders as we do among ourselves. My husband can tell when I'm on the phone if I'm talking to one of us or an outsider. I'm proud of our way of talking. I want to retain it. I want to preserve its memory. I hope to accomplish more than just a list of words and their meaning, the expressions, the thoughts behind them, how they were used, thus capturing the way mountain people think and believe their customs, traditions, way of life. The softness of our voices causes us to drop the G in words ending in I and G. Then laughing becomes laughing. Mourning becomes mourning. Smiling becomes smiling. We slur two syllables together. Then chestnut becomes chestnut. Sometimes two or three words become one. The greeting, how do you do, turns to howdy. How are you, Harry? We do not talk as our fathers and mothers did. As the outsiders moved in, our language was absorbed into theirs. Our children have lost more. The grandchildren have only a small trace of it left as they get more educated. I know it's something that must be folded and put away as the clothes worn by our dead ancestors, but it must not be forgotten, but preserved, taken out now and again, admired for its beauty, accepted for its wisdom, and remembered with pride by those to whom it belongs. I can think of no better way to describe why I do this podcast. Thank you very much, Sloan. Hello, kindred spirits. If you like the content I'm putting into the world about the culture of Appalachia and you just want to support the podcast, there are links in my show notes where you can do just that. Whether your support buys me a cup of coffee during these long hours of editing, I do it all myself. Or if you want to offer a monthly contribution for which I'm happy to include your name or organization or your book as a supporter on our show notes and give you early access to episodes and other perks. Maybe you can just share the episodes you love the most and spread Spread the word about us, which is totally free. I appreciate you and any support you have to spare. Find me on patreon.com slash Talking Appalachian Podcast or at Talking Appalachian on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to keep talking Appalachian.